health is wealth, and this is where we're going to talk about it. The Small Conversations for a Better World podcast with hosts Jillian McCormick and Susanna Steers. This podcast represents the opinions of the hosts and or their guests to the show. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice nor establish legal standard of care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Small Conversations for a Better World podcast. I'm Susanna Steers. And I'm Jillian McCormick. And I'm Jill Mueller. Endometriosis is a condition experienced by women where material that is similar to the tissues inside the uterus, that is called the endometrium, are found outside the uterus. And this tissue, which is not meant to be where it is found, acts like endometrial tissue does. It proliferates, it breaks down, and it bleeds. But unlike the bleeding during a monthly cycle that has a way out of the body, there's no way that the body can rid itself of this monthly bleeding. This condition can cause these women to experience pain that is cyclical and can lead to countless days of decreased productivity, missed days of school or work that are hard to describe the reason for. I have to take a day off because. It can lead to more permanent things like scarring and fertility issues. Endometriosis is a challenging condition, difficult to diagnose and complicated to treat. There are, however, as we will hear from our guest today, things that can help and reasons to make a plan early in life if one suspects that they have endometriosis. Jill Mueller has been a physiotherapist for almost 20 years but became interested in the pelvic side of therapy after experiencing her own fertility and pain challenges linked to endometriosis. She wanted to share with clients the evidence-informed techniques that she learned as a physiotherapist and has used on herself to help her get out of her own monthly pain. Jill is so passionate about this that she's spreading awareness and is currently designing an online course for physiotherapists who she feels can play a vital role in helping clients regain a better quality of life. Welcome to the podcast, Jill. We're so pleased to have you on to talk about this stuff. Oh, thank you guys. So let's start with the obvious ones. I mean, I kind of led in there, but tell us what is endometriosis? And I want to know how common it is in the general population. Okay, so endometriosis is tissue that is similar to the endometrial lining that we shed every month, but it's not exactly the same they've discovered, that is found outside of the uterus, as you mentioned, most commonly in the pelvis, in and around the bladder and the rectum, but has been found in other places like the diaphragm, the liver, as far up as into the brain, I think the only organ that it hasn't been found on is the spleen. And it is said to be found in 10 to 15% of the female population. So girls, women, trans men. Yep. Girls, women, fetuses, even. Fetuses. That was my next question is when does this show up? Yeah, so they've done autopsies on fetuses and recognize that one out of 10, which is what they're finding in adult women, um, that it is in that 10% in fetuses as well. So they're looking at an embryological link to it, as opposed to the 
misconception um, previously of a retrograde flow or a flow of our um, our our menses back through the fallopian tubes into the pelvis. That's sort of been um, debunked as a theory. Okay, so the lesions. This is the theory are present, prepubescent. And then is it that the hormones kicking in in adolescence in girls, that might be when, when pain starts to show up? Yeah, because it is estrogen dependent. So when we start to get those cyclical changes hormonally, that's when it can be triggered, for lack of a better word. In pre-prepubescent children, uh, it, can, it can sometimes show up as digestive issues like constipation, um, maybe IBS-like symptoms, and but it wouldn't be cyclical in nature due to the lack of hormonal fluctuations. Okay, right. So what are the theories about how, so embryological, that's one theory. It's just somehow part of the developing tissue, something in the DNA. That's part of a theory of why the lesions are there. Are there any other theories? Um, I mean, some still believe you will still see out there the, the retrograde flow. Um, there's some thought that environmental toxin exposure, dioxin is one that was an herbicide used a, long, a while ago. And in Canada, it's um, illegal, but not potentially in other countries. So they're looking at, is there an environmental toxin trigger? Uh, it could be a combination of all of them. They're looking at genetics because they do know that there is a higher familial risk to it if your mother or sister has it as well. Yeah. Or metaplasia, which is where one cell type turns into a different cell type is another. But basically, they, they don't know is what it comes down to. And one cell type turning into a different cell type, just so we're clear for the people, that's not, it's not cancerous. It's not a... It's, it's not cancer, but it has been compared to cancer in the fact that it's, so it's not cancer. I do want to make that clear. It's not cancer, but um, some cancers, like some breast cancers are estrogen dependent. It sort of can act like that. Some surgeons are, are sort of considering it like cancer in the sense that it can be sort of spread all over. Um, but it isn't, it isn't cancer. It's more, it more affects us functionally than it does mm. mortally. So that affects us functionally. One of the chief symptoms of endometriosis is, is a, a cyclical pain. Mm -hmm. so can you tell us about what that's like. So, I mean, I have endometriosis for anybody who, who doesn't, who doesn't follow me, but um, it is, that is sort of the telltale feature of endometriosis is that extremely painful menstrual cycle that definitively sort of stops you in your tracks and doesn't allow you to go to school or go to work. Um, it can be pretty debilitating. There are other 
symptoms to look at though like i mentioned the it, it sort of maybe depends on where the the lesions are so if it is tucked in be, between so the bladder in the pelvic bowl the bladder's in the front the uterus is in the middle and the rectum is behind and the the endometriosis likes to sort of nestle in those pouches between the bladder and uterus or between the uterus and the rectum. So oftentimes if, if it's sort of behind the uterus between the rectum, people might have pain with defecation or having a bowel movement, um, or they might have pain with deep intercourse because the cervix isn't as mobile. Or they may, if it's in the front, may present with bladder issues or what might be diagnosed as interstitial cystitis. Those are common comorbidities with endometriosis, but because of the endometrial lesions. And then if it's in the digestive system, it can give you sort of the classic endobelly, which is bloating at certain times of the month where women will look like six months pregnant. Um, they may have bleeding, or sorry, they may have breathing issues if it's around the diaphragm. It sort of depends on where it's presenting. And obviously that's going to also, it may be outside of their menses, the pain, but it generally will ebb and flow with their cycle. So isn't some pain with menstruation... (sighs) normal or expected? I mean, I understand that there are some unicorns out there that don't get any pain or cramping with their periods. Maybe the question I'm trying to ask is what's like a normal or non-suspicious level of pain with your period? Yeah, that's a, that is the quintessential question because it isn't uncommon to have some discomfort during menses, but the definition of uh, of dysmenorrhea, which is which means pain with menstruation, is where it does interfere with your daily function. So if you're missing school or missing work because of it, that's above and beyond normal, and oftentimes they will go to the doctor and be told it's normal. It's not normal if you're missing life. Okay, Jill, let's break this down a bit. I have some stats here from a talk that you gave to the Women's Health Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. So maybe you can shed some light or add details or just confirm that we have the right picture. And I was kind of fascinated to read these. Um, More than 500,000 women in Canada have endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And 176 million worldwide. Yep. You mentioned already that one in 10 women, girls, and trans men have endometriosis. And this is interesting too. Five out of 10 women with infertility have endometriosis. It's the number one reason that women have infertility or fertility challenges. And is that typically the first thing that's investigated? Uh, it was one of one of the first things for me because I had fertility challenges too. Um, she, the doctor, I think, started to put the whole question. She probably asked me a bunch of questions like, "Do you have pain with menstruation?" And I mean, I don't remember at the time, but there was something that made her suspect I had endometriosis. So she wanted to do a laparoscopy, which is 
a little like when they go in with a little camera and into your abdomen and look for the endometriosis and so she did that's where she discovered it um but so by the time you have fertility issues, I think there, they're maybe taking you more seriously. And in Canada, generally, we're having, we're having children later in life. So they, there's that sense of urgency when you start to get into your 30s. And if you've been trying for a year already, they're, they're like, okay, well, we don't have a whole lot of time. Let's, let's get going on this. Right. Uh, but before that, it is it takes a lot. They don't take you as seriously when it's pain. They take you more seriously when it's fertility. So that's where I feel like pelvic physios or physios in general can be more of an advocate. And if we know more about it, we can educate our clients and guide them to the right treatments for it or the right doctors. Right. Because, I mean, it, it, some of the stats here also say that five out of 10 women with chronic pelvic pain have endometriosis. Mm-hmm. So odd that that it's not being taken as seriously when when it is about pain. I know. It, it is odd given that we know those statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a big a big missing part with the doctors, and I mean, I especially feel bad for them right now because of the pandemic. They get even less time and it's a lot of times virtual right now but if you sit and ask the right questions or the questions that might check or uncheck whether you suspect they have endometriosis it can be such a quick and easy check Um, and I think that's being missed a lot. So can I jump in here just what what to you is the quick and easy check? Okay. Oh, yeah, fair. Um, I think asking questions about, like, the questions I ask are, you know, the ones attributed to, do you have any bladder issues? Do you have any bowel issues? Do you have any pain with intercourse or pelvic pain? Um, did you have digestive issues as a child? That can be a clue. Did your mother have trouble getting pregnant because they probably wouldn't know if she had endometriosis or not. Does your, Mm -hmm. do you have any female sisters uh, or do you have any sisters um, that may be having trouble getting pregnant or have cyclical pain? So just questions like that, I think can help guide, guide that. Are there any estimates of, of, lost productivity or costs to the system related to endometriosis? Yeah, actually, there was a study that came out in 2019, so relatively new, um, that looked at the cost, the hospital cost in Canada. So this is a Canadian, Canadian stats. It's probably, you know, relatively similar in in most countries, but the hospital cost associated with endometriosis is approximately $30 million per year. The societal and economic cost to to Canadians is $5,200 per patient, which with lost productivity and lost leisure cost accounting for 78% of that. And then if we extrapolate from these figures, that's a total annual cost to Canadian society of $1.8 billion from surgically confirmed endometriosis. Wow. Isn't that insane? 
That is insane. And that's just surgically confirmed. That's that's surgically confirmed. Think of all the people who aren't surgically confirmed. So it's huge. It's a huge burden on every aspect that needs to be more taken more seriously and more research. There is lots of research happening. Um, I know that the UK put a lot of, they looked at their, their stats are very similar and they just devoted a bunch of money into research for endometriosis. So I'm super excited about that to see where that comes out um, in the next few years. Can we, Maybe take it in a little more of a personal direction. We know that you have your own history here, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, would you be comfortable telling us a little about your own journey with endometriosis? Like, did sure. it start in your teen years you had started having pain, or, or what was your story like? Yeah, um, so I didn't have any of the digestive issues when I was younger, but I think I think I ate pretty well, so it it made a big difference to how my digestion was. I was pretty regular, that sort of thing. But when it really hit me was when I got my period for the first time, I was a little older. I was like 15, I think, which they do say if it's younger, it can be worse. Um, I did have a lot of pain every month. I don't remember it stopping me from going to school, but that's kind of my personality too. I don't let a lot of stop me, which is, I'm learning not a good thing. Um, I need to listen to my body a little bit. Well, I'm getting better at listening to my body, but back then I would just kind of barrel through it. I didn't have another classic sign of endometriosis is a heavy period. And I, I actually had the opposite. Mine was really scant. And I remember saying to my cousin when I was about 22, I said, you know what, I know I'm going to have fertility challenges because it, there's something going on. Like I, I just knew it wasn't normal, but I also knew the pain wasn't normal. I remember saying to her, I seriously challenge uh, labor, labor pains. And any woman that's given birth is like, there's no flipping way that you had as much pain during your period as labor pains. But I will tell you this, I gave birth with no medication and those, yeah, it was it was exactly like my menstrual cramps. Wow. Oh my god. So pretty debilitating. Um it was really after taking a, a year of trying or maybe it was 6 months of trying to get pregnant because I was older at that point I was like 30 and that's when we went to the fertility specialist and they started to investigate it. So it was after after you decided you wanted to have a child. Yeah, but my dad was a doctor, so I think that's what prevented me from going to a doctor about it. They put me on the pill um, pretty early, that which is standard. They will probably they usually put younger women on the pill to help manage the symptoms, which we can go into because it doesn't actually stop the endometriosis. Which I want. So I mean, do they need to? have a laparoscopy to that's the way it's diagnosed but when you're a teen I think it's good to be thinking about endometriosis because the pill just masks it it doesn't actually get rid of it 
And so if you know everything, you know that your fertility, your fertility might be challenged, you might want to start to be thinking about things a little bit differently going into your 20s than waiting till your 30s. You know, a lot of us have two degrees and you're not, you know, you're 25, 30 before you graduate. So it's, it's prolonging everything for us. I think it's a, an issue in Canada, actually. We're definitely going to talk more about treatment uh, a little bit later in the interview, for sure, sure. because it's a massive, um, just around strategizing for what you're going to mm-hmm. do. I have heard that getting pregnant and delivering a full-term baby may help cure endometriosis. Well, I don't know where you heard that, but that's not true. There you go. All right. I mean, it will prevent you from having a period for those times, those months, but it's certainly not going to get rid of your endometriosis. In fact, it was kind of interesting because when I gave, when I was in labor, my actual contraction felt like a menstrual cramp. It was the, it was afterwards, after that contraction, I would get this intense pain over on my left side and I could tell it was an endometrial lesion tearing. That's what hurt more than the actual contraction. It was so weird. Well, and I think that that, um, my understanding of that quote unquote cure endometriosis is that after delivering the baby, because of that experience, you just talked about some of these endometrial lesions would have been perhaps torn and creating space where there hasn't been space for a long time. So certain things. Yeah, Yeah, mobility of the organs. Because I do, I do visceral manipulation or visceral mo- mobilization, which can create a lot of comfort for for women. If you're if you're creating some mobility in the uterus or in that in the space between the uterus and the bladder, or bladder and uterus, um, or the rectum, it can it can be very it it can alleviate a lot of the symptoms um, like deep deep pain with intercourse or pain with a bowel movement, that sort of thing. So there is something about getting mobility back in the system, which giving birth may do, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't actually Cure. get, it's the, the wording of it that gets confusing when you hear it. It doesn't cure endometriosis. Now, I think I, I've heard that you have a, a new mantra that goes something like get them when they're young. And I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago. You aren't just being funny or flip here. Um, it seems like what you're saying is that we need to be advocating for young women who know they have a diagnosis of endometriosis or maybe suspect it to harvest their eggs in hopes of present, preventing some of the heartache around fertility that many women go through. Is that true? Well, I mean, this is obviously going to be on a case-by-case basis, but I personally, I would have wanted to know, I don't know if it would have made any difference with me back in the day, because who knows where fertility treatments were back in the day. But nowadays, is it unrealistic to have a conversation with a young adult about their fertility when even though they're not thinking about their fertility, 
I just want them to know that their fertility could be compromised. I mean, the statistics are there, right? Their fertility could be compromised if we're really suspecting they have endometriosis or even know they have endometriosis. Is it unrealistic for them to do or think about egg harvesting and freezing their eggs? It's it's not unrealistic. Is it for everyone? No, it's not for everyone. But I feel like, you know what, if we present all of the knowledge for them to process and make decisions, like how are they supposed to make decisions if they don't know these options? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis and then we'll talk about stages of endometriosis and then we're going to talk about treatment options. How does that sound? Yeah. All right. So give us the skinny about about, you know, official diagnosis of endometriosis? So the gold standard diagnosis is by laparoscopy done by a specialist who knows what to look for. So what I mean by that is a lot of times gynecologists or other surgeons might be doing surgery for, let's say they went to a bladder specialist or a colorectal specialist because of bowel issues, that person might be doing surgery and endometriosis can look like different things. So there's something they learn about in medical school called the chocolate cysts, which is like a, cho- just, just like it's out, a brownish, brownish cyst-like thing. And that's what they learn to look for. And by the way, they only get about 20 minutes of education on endometriosis in school. And so it also can look clear. And there are some research studies to say that the younger they are, it might look clear or red. And as somebody gets older, it might look different. They're also looking for um, adhesions, which can be when one fascia is stuck to another fascia with something that kind of looks like a spider web. So they need to be look, no, they they need to know how endometriosis presents in these different means in order to know what they're looking for. So they have to be kind of what we say an endo specialist. And the gold standard is by laparoscopy. But like I said, that's invasive. There's also, because of the pandemic right now, they're not doing a lot of these surgeries. Sure. So they're having to ask the questions. And there is a sort of a guideline for them that's put out by the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, which is easily, you can, anybody can get online. And so they're kind of pocketing the two groups into pain groups and into fertility groups. The pain groups, they're looking at really managing through uh, medical means or medicine. We'll get into that. But diagnosis-wise, they're essentially asking more questions. As opposed, So there is no MRI or ultrasound that can diagnose it, although... There, I've been to conferences where endo specialists have said they can see stuff. So there is, you know, if there, if it is an endometrial cyst, then it might be, you know, if if they're on the ovaries or if it's a deep endometriosis, it may show up on an MRI or an ultrasound. But again, 
person looking at those imaging images need they need to know what they're looking for so so they have to be educated first of all maybe mri and ultrasound but let's just generally say no it's there's a high negative let's just put it that way the gold standard is by laparoscopy okay so jill i get really frustrated and and kind of incredulous when i hear this and and maybe you need to course correct me but okay so i hear it takes a long time to be a fit to, to be definitively diagnosed because of course they're they're dismissing the pain so there's that but why aren't there less invasive and expensive ways to diagnose this it feels to me like another one of those things that are true for women because society does not value women or healthcare women's health research is not valued like is that what this is or am i just angry for no reason <laughs> no i'm just i'm just as angry um it is an you know it would be interesting if it were Okay, this is where we're going to get into trouble, ladies. I know, but let's, let's <laughs> get into trouble, Bill. I'm here to get into trouble. If it were a male who had something going on with his Johnson and his fertility, I'm sure there would be a cure for it already or some sort of non-invasive testing procedure. Test. Yes. There are really looking into blood tests for this and... So it's it's not like they're ignoring it now. They're re, I think the dollars, the burden on the healthcare system is what pu is pushing it now, which is good. I mean, we, that research needed to come out in 2019 in order to push it. Okay, so friends of women's health research that are listening, reach out and tell us good news, please. Or can you get on it? Because this feels unacceptable. Yeah. Okay, so the surgery is laparoscopic, and the intention is diagnosis of that surgery. There are stages of, of, of endometriosis, correct? Yes, and the stages are interesting because, okay, so the stages are related to, not to symptoms, but to how much endometriosis there is and where it is, basically. So there are four different stages, stage one being the, the least amount, stage four being the most amount. But the interesting thing about that is that symptoms have been shown to not correlate with those findings, as is a lot of imaging, to be honest. You know, if we look at the, the, the diagnosis of degenerative disc disease and osteoarthritis and the correlation of pain, it's it there is no correlation to pain so a lot of us will show osteoarthritis or a lot of us will show degenerative disc disease which they sound horrible but you do imaging on one person who has symptoms and one person who doesn't have symptoms they have the exact same imaging that doctor reading that cannot tell which one has pain and endometriosis endometriosis is very similar they can look at somebody laparoscopy wise and and maybe they have a stage one, which generally isn't a whole lot of endometriosis, and yet they have oodles of pain and dysfunction. And yet other times they've done surgery for other things and discovered that someone is full of endometriosis and yet never had any pain, maybe one specific thing. So it's really interesting, the staging and the correlation or lack thereof with 
symptoms. Okay, so that brings us nicely to treatment. Uh, it sounds like treatment is like a case-by-case basis. It totally is. So yeah. what, what's treatment? Talk to, talk to us about what treatment looks like. So medically, generally, when someone goes to a doctor, because they may be going to a doctor first, although now in Canada, we have direct access to physio. So it might be physio. So I'll kind of, I'll kind of look at it both ways. If the person goes to the doctor and they're young and they're complaining or talking about, I hate the word complaining, mentioning their menstrual pain right away, they will likely put them on the pill which I, you can kind of look at it in two ways. Like one way they're avoiding surgery, but I want to make sure that they're not being sloughed off and left for years and forgotten about until they go off the pill and then have issues, right? Because the pill does not get rid of endometriosis, but it can buy them comfort in, able, in being able to live their life and be functional in life and not miss out on those social events and all those things that are super important and they're productive and they're working and all of that. So the pill can be a good option that way, that and, and usually anti-inflammatories. But the thing about anti-inflammatories, if somebody is wanting to get pregnant, it can affect ovulation or their, it can affect their ovulation. So it is reversible once they stop, but a lot of women don't know that. So they might be trying to get pregnant and taking their NSAIDs to prevent, you have to take them essentially before you get your period because it's you're wanting to reduce prostaglandins from being released, which are the pain, pain producing um, hormones. So if we can stop those, by taking the NSAIDs ahead of time, that that's better. But if you're taking that in relation to trying to get pregnant as well, that can be an issue. And then there's other medications that are can put you into medical menopause, which also come with severe side effects. So most most of them if you're going into medical menopause you're looking at bone loss you're looking at foggy memory sleep dis- disturbance hot flashes all those fun symptoms when when you aren't ready to be going through that so a lot of patients don't actually like those as an option they're really pushing those right now cuz surgery isn't an option Um, Those are the main, IUD is another one, which is a fair option um, with hormonal control, yeah. And on the other side, so if someone comes into us as pelvic physios or physios, so like I said, we want to ask all those questions and see how it's affecting them functionally, treatment is going to be based on on their symptoms. So if they have bladder issues, we're going over bladder irritants and might be contributed to, contributing to the dysfunction or the pain with, or frequent urination with, with their bladder. Um, we are looking at if it's uh, more bowel movements, we're looking at what's coming, like are, are their eating habits, what are they eating? 
how to, you know, is it on the loose side or is it really hard, more constipated? There's a lot that we can do as physios that, that way. We can do some manual techniques to help relax the system if they're guarding a lot in their, um, in their abdomen and guarding in their pelvic floor. We, we play a massive, that is our job, right? And teaching them how to down-regulate the, the nervous system and, and calming that guarding. We also can look at um, how centrally sensitized are they? And what that means is how, how amped up is their nervous system in that pain has been there for so long that they have new neural pathways that are overprotective. Like our nervous system becomes overprotective, which we're probably all feeling right now. (laughs) Um, So there are a lot of different techniques that have been proven to help calm the nervous system, which inadvertently will calm the tight tightness and tension in the muscles. So we can screen for that part as well. Um, So I think pelvic physios and physios in general, if we're looking at musculoskeletal, uh, anything that might be contributing, that might be coming from the back, there's a lot of places that physios can play a role in helping to guide these, these patients. But basically, when they come in to see us, we have to figure out there is no protocol for one person. We have to talk to them and figure out what is it about y- your experience with this that you want to work on. Excellent. Yes. I love that. No protocol. No human has a protocol. I feel like it's all case by case. But mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I that laparoscopic... Um, surgical excision when they do that mm-hmm. is is that an effective treatment they go in i understand it as they go in they find the lesions and they can excise them surgically yeah i guess sorry i didn't mention that one because um because they're not doing it a lot right now so i'm kind of now biased um so <laughs> yes yeah. the excision this is a good point excision versus ablation So excision is when they cut out. So if we imagine, and this, I talked about this on the webinar, if we imagine sort of an iceberg, so we know that an iceberg is like 10% above the ocean and most of it is underneath the ocean. The endometrial lesions or tissue can be like that. So we, excision is when you cut out the boundaries around that whole lesion in order for it to not grow back. Whereas ablation is more cutting off or cauterizing just the top part of that iceberg. And so we do want to make sure that whoever's doing the surgery is an excision specialist. And there are, um, on the endometriosis network of Canada, there's a list of doctors in Canada do excision surgery. And so if you're going to be getting that surgery or even the diagnosis, it's really important for us to be referring to an endo specialist who does this specifically. Right. For that training piece that we've already spoken about, it sounds like there's a very specific amount of knowledge there. So they take these lesions out uh, are, do new ones form or is this like this fixes it for these women? So 
research shows that 20 to 30% of the time, five years later, they will, they will, um, it will come back. But I would like to take that research and further dive into it and say, who was like, are these endo specialists or these gynecologists or who's doing these surgeries? Because is it ablation? Is it excision? There's so many questions attributed to those stats. So those stats are going to be better if you're with someone who I wasn't. I wasn't with someone who I'm pretty sure I got ablation and I know that she's not a specialist as well. So um, mine's probably, I mean, I can feel it. It doesn't give me pain, but I can feel it restricting. I think it's around my nerve, my sciatic nerve a bit, but it, it, so it can come back if it's not all taken out. Hmm. Okay. So I know that you are, you mentioned already creating a course for physiotherapists to help mm -hmm. spread this better understanding. And I, I think I understand you're also putting together a course for, for patients, for people who are non-practitioners, but want to know more. Is that... Mm -hmm. That's what my my hope is, because a lot of it is education and a lot of it is learning what you can do for yourself. I'm a guide a lot of times with my patients, whether they like it or not. <laughs> but, you know, it's almost that proverb of like teaching someone to fish versus catching their fish for them every time. I'm sure, you know, however, that's said much more nicely than that. But I'm trying to teach them that there's a lot they can do to control the controllables, basically, in making a difference in managing their symptoms. Like right now, I haven't gotten, I didn't go and get more surgery done. I actually, through learning about the nervous system and through movement and listening to my body and doing and honoring what my body needs from month to month, month to month, I actually have learned to get out of pain entirely. I don't have any menstrual, I don't have any pain during my period anymore, unless I get off track. Got and you it. know when I get off track? Every year when I go away on a girl's trip, <laughs> <laughs> so oh. like, you know, you, you're up late, you're drinking a little too much, you're eating a lot more things that you probably wouldn't eat normally. And it's all the things put together. And notoriously, every time I come back that period, I, it's just a mess. And I lie on the floor and I'm like, yep, yeah, okay, I got to get back on track. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I try and teach my, my clients. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so we're just, we hear it again and again and again, no matter who we talk to on the podcast, that so much of health and health outcomes and being healthy is the things that we manage in our own lifestyles and in our own bodies. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I have to admit, well, what I'm hearing today is blowing my mind. I didn't even know what endometriosis was until well into my 20s. And then really only because a friend had it. But I you know, hearing what I'm hearing today, I didn't really get it. Um, I don't think I did either. To be honest. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, uh, yeah, it's, it is, like I said, it's blowing my mind. Um, I heard that, that just this year in the greater Vancouver area, the BC women's hospital and the health center provided endometriosis training in a pilot project at a BC high school. Um, 
Yeah, well, a, sex, what, a sexual health educator from Options for Sexual Health did the teaching and I, I guess was going to identify for the girls what was normal and, and what was not. Not just um, the girls. It's, it's in the whole classroom. So it's six one-hour lessons for all students in grade 8 to 12. I love it. Oh, that is even better. So the great. Oh, I love this. Well, I mean, I understand that it's that it's kind of installed due to COVID like so much more, but we will check back on this. Um, it just seems like such an amazing move. And especially hearing now that that it's the whole class and not just to the girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, just fantastic. And that's based on um, a project in New Zealand that has been implemented. So they are extrapolating from that and bringing that here, which I think is amazing. And I would love, I'm in Ontario. I would love for it to come to Ontario. Wow. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll update people when we hear more about that. We'll check back and, and uh, do what we can to let people know what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um. I guess as we roll toward the end of our conversation, what I'd like to do is ask you, what is health in your estimation? Ooh, such a good question. I love that you guys asked this. Um, so I, I did put some thought into this and it didn't take me long to, to think about this health to me. So, we know that life has its ebbs and flows and we're definitely experiencing that now with COVID. This is a, this is a good time to really think about what is health. It ebbs and flows with our mental state. It ebbs and flows with our physical state. And those two play hand in hand. And I think to me, health is the epitome of listening to what our body and mind need. So if, we're feeling down if if our mental state is having its challenges i say find something that will soothe that mentally so for me that's mindfulness or just breathing or a guided meditation i can do it through movement if i don't want to sit there and think at all um, i find qigong or yoga helps with that but if it's a physical health, then honoring what that needs. Do I need to eat better? Do I need to sleep better? So it's, to me, health means being aware of what our mind and our body are telling us instead of being angry at it, let it be the messenger and listen to it and honor and respect what it needs. That is beautiful. And I love the piece that you said there about, um, don't be angry at it, yeah. <laughs> but honor it. Because uh, it's so easy to do, to get angry at it. Mm -hmm. Jill, thank you so much for spreading the word about endometriosis. Your commitment to the health of women and girls everywhere is inspiring, and we salute you for it. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thank you both for having me. I do want to help spread this awareness, like you said, and any way that we can get it out there, ladies. We're with you. That's all for today's small conversation. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and learned as much as we did. We'll provide links to all things Jill Mueller in the show notes. And we'll be here next time. And we'll have the coffee on. Oh.
If you liked what you heard, we encourage you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Better yet, subscribe and leave a review. That really helps to make it easier for others to find us to help broaden this small conversation.